Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, last week we saw of how Jacob adopted the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. So much so that they would have equal status with the rest of his sons. And in terms of even historically understanding, then we would understand why there would be no tribe of Joseph. Instead, there would be uh, the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh, because they were counted as the sons of Jacob. And we saw last week of how Joseph was given the double blessing of inheritance of the land as it was given to Ephraim and Manasseh. And now we come to the last section of what Jacob will do before he dies. And this time he's going to call all of his 12 sons and he's going to bless them. And really, there's, there's a lot to cover here in terms of just looking at each of these sons. But what I want you to understand is, as we, as we go through this section, that it is telling us of what will become of these 12 sons and essentially the tribes that would come out from there. Beyond that, we see the Uh, something of the history of the nation of Israel being played out to an extent. But even more importantly, we see of how, again, the promise of the Messiah would come and ultimately how God's redemptive plan or salvation history would come about. All of that being mentioned here in this wonderful chapter. So let's look at... Uh, this chapter, verses 1 through 28. We're going to look at this under two headings. I'm going to do something a little bit different than what I would normally do. Uh, We're going to look at our first point, and that's the blessing of Joseph and his brothers uh, from verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to skip the section of Judah And then we're going to look at the last section, which is 13 through to 28. And that'll cover the blessing of Joseph and his brothers. And then in our second point, we'll look at the blessing of Judah. And that's in verses 8 through 12. And through Judah will come the Messiah ultimately. Okay, so... The blessing of Joseph and his brothers. Just one more thing I want to note here is also, so amongst all the sons that are mentioned here, two sons will get prominent blessing, so to speak. One will be Joseph and one will be Judah. So just to be mindful of that, whilst everyone gets something or the other, the prominent ones here will be Joseph and Judah, and hence the subheading, the blessing of Joseph and his brothers, and then the blessing of Judah. So firstly, the blessing of Joseph and his brothers, verse 1, then Jacob called his sons and said, 
Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So an important thing for us to understand here is that while Jacob is blessing his sons, he's, he's summoned all his 12 sons here, this is not Jacob simply expressing his, you know, his hopes and his dreams for his sons, you know, like, oh, may God bless you and maybe that'll come true or not. That's not what's happening here. These are actual prophetic blessings of the patriarch. And that's why it says here, again in verse 1, where he says that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. These are God-enabled prophecies of what would happen to the sons of Jacob and the tribes that they represent. And when you follow these prophecies and how it plays out in the history of Israel, you know, how these prophecies come to pass, it serves as a reminder once again that God's word is true. That whatever God has said will always come to pass. His word can never be broken. No one can ever thwart what he has said. Will hap- what he has said will always come to pass. So I want you to particularly keep that in mind as we go through the prophecies of each of these sons. Now in terms of just structure-wise in this section, in verses 1 through 15, you have the sons of Leah. In verses 16 through to 21, you have the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the concubine wives. And then in verses 22 to 27, you have the sons of Rachel. So let's start with the firstborn now, which is Reuben, verse 3. So Jacob calls Reuben first, and he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it. You went up to my, he went up to my couch. So what is Jacob saying here? Well, Reuben being the firstborn, he had the status of being the preeminent one in dignity and in power as the firstborn. But Reuben, he defiled his father's bed and he slept with his father's concubine wife as a way to exert his dominance, as a way to usurp his father's authority, if you remember. You know, it was after Rachel died. And this, was, uh, and, and this is w- what had happened. As though he was trying to say, you know what, now I'm going to be in charge, Father. You are no more. You are as good as dead. And what Jacob says here is he is, Unstable as water. What does he mean by that? Like, like torrential water. You know, unruly, undisciplined, unprincipled, reckless. Has that sort of an idea. 
And when you think about it, you don't want such a reckless person leading Israel. You know, he can't be the firstborn, such a reckless person. And so because of this act that Reuben had done, he forfeits his place of preeminence as the firstborn. In fact, when you look into Israel's history, the tribe of Reuben will actually lack any kind of preeminence. In fact, there will be no prophet, no priest, no king, no judge, or any kind of military leader or anything of that sort that comes from the tribe of Reuben. They just fade into the background, so to speak. Now we move on to the next two sons, Simeon and Levi. Now if you remember, when their sister Dinah was defiled, it was Simeon and Levi who, in vengeance, massacred all the men at Shechem. And look at what Jacob says to them, verses 5 and 6. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory, be not, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they kill them, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. See, these men, Simeon and Levi, were so filled with anger because this one man, Shechem, had raped their sister, they not only killed all the men then in that area, they in fact went and cut the tendons of the oxen's legs, you know, causing even their animals to suffer. So when you think about this, this was not justice. It was cruel, it was a cruel, wicked act of vengeance. And Jacob pretty much says, I don't want much to do with you two. He says in verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Notice here, Jacob doesn't curse them per se. But their defining character, their, their fierce uh, anger. And he says, because of that, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So really what's happening here is in order to curb this cruel anger from dominating in Israel, God providentially speaks through Jacob and says he will divide them and scatter them. And when you tr trace these tribes, that's exactly what happens to these two tribes. You know, by the time of the wilderness wanderings, the tribe of Simeon becomes the smallest of tribes. And when they get the allotment in the land, their land is really within the land of Judah. It's almost like they get absorbed into the land of Judah and they're kind of curbed and surrounded by mighty Judah. And then the tribe of Levi, well, they're scattered among the tribes of Israel as well. And they don't get any allotment of land, but by God's grace, they actually become the priestly line. And every priest in Israel 
comes from the tribe of Levi, the Levites. So that's what's going to happen to Simeon and Levi. They're going to be scattered and they're going to be divided because, they're, because of their cruel anger, that huge problem they have within themselves. Now we'll skip Judah and skip over to move to verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Now Zebulun would, when the land is allocated, they'd be in the northern part. And what we see from there is that they're not really surrounding the coast, but they're in an inland area. But the the interesting thing about this area that they'll be given is that it'll be part of a trade route of sea merchants. And so they would be involved with trading with sea merchants and get a lot of riches from the sea. In fact, Deuteronomy at the end of that book will also talk about getting riches from the sea as well because of that same reason. So that's Zebulun. Then you have Issachar. It says, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, and so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Now, calling, you know, a father calling their, their boy a donkey in this day and age may not sound very nice. But this wasn't, Jacob wasn't using this pejoratively, calling Issachar a donkey. See, what he's saying is, Issachar, you're strong and powerful. You know, a good workhorse, so to speak. That's what a donkey is. A strong animal that can do work. But then what will happen to this tribe is that all this tribe wants to wants is just good rest and pleasant land. Essentially portraying them as lazy. All they want is a life of ease and prosperity and not do any work. So even though they're a strong donkey, they're simply crouching between sheepfolds. And because they, they've got good land and the land is pleasant and it's a restful place, they, they're happy to trade their liberty and pay tributes to whoever is in the area, even if they become slaves, so long as they have prosperity and some sort of ease in the land. And that's exactly what will become of this tribe of Issachar, where they'll become servants of the Canaanites because of their laziness and their strong love for comfort and ease. So that's the sons of Leah. Now we come to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, verses 16 through 21. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Dan shall judge his people. Some of the judges will come from the tribe of Dan. In fact, one of the most famous judges 
actually comes from the tribe of Dan that most of us would know of. He's none other than Samson. And he, if, when you think of the life of Samson, he was a cunning fellow, cunning like a snake and shrewd like a snake. And by his trickery, he would be able to defeat the Philistines. So that's the tribe of Dan. Now it might be that at this point that Jacob is thinking about you know, the, the strengths of his son and the hostilities and the difficulties of his sons and what their tribes will face. And so Jacob says this prayer in between in verse 18. He'll say, I'll wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's almost like he's saying, no matter if there is failure with regards to my son, no matter if there is difficulty and hostility or even strengths that they may possess, Lord, I'm confidently waiting for the salvation that only you alone will bring about. And so he, he's like, Lord, I don't know how all this is going to happen with my sons, but ultimately my hope and trust is in you and the salvation that you will bring about. Verse 19. Raiders shall raid Gad and he shall raid at their heels. Now Gad will be a tribe that will be under regular attacks from their neighboring enemies. But they will, but Gad won't be lazy, they will be those who will fight back and they will be known as great warriors. Verse 20, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Asher will settle in a land where the land is so fertile, the produce is so good, so exquisite, so luxurious, that they will supply food even for the king's palace. Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Oh, if you have a footnote in the ESV, you'll even say that bears beautiful words or gives beautiful words. And I think that's, I, I lean more towards that translation. And when you think of in Judges 5, the, the song of Deborah and Barak, they're from the tribe of Naphtali and they sing this beautiful song of praise to God you know, because of the victory that he gave them over the enemies. That's an example of the beautiful words that will come from Naphtali. And we know that even more than that, Naphtali and Zebulun you know, later on will become part of the area of Galilee where Jesus would do a lot of his ministry and proclaim the good news of the gospel. And so there would be a greater fulfillment there of the beautiful words that would come from Naphtali. So that's the sons of the concubine wives. Now we come to the sons of Rachel. 22 to 27, Joseph, the, the, one of his beloved sons. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Joseph here is being compared to a fruitful vine or a fruitful tree by a spring, 
with its branches growing over the wall. Now, does that remind you of anything? The description of the blessed man in Psalm 1, who is like a tree planted by waters, bearing fruit in its season, and whatever he does prospers. You know, Joseph was bearing fruit wherever he was. He was a blessing to all those around. In Potiphar's house, when he was in prison, when he was in Pharaoh's palace, and ultimately the blessing was not just to his family, but to the entire world during the time of the famine. And if you think back at Psalm 1, Psalm 1 says the the, the blessed man, the fruitful man, was one who meditated on the law of God day and night, and his delight was in the law of God. And as one theologian has suggested, and I, I tend to agree with him, you know, Joseph at this time, he didn't have the written word of God. But what did he have? He knew of the promises of God, of his father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He even knew of the promise that came through the dream of what will happen to him. He knew of God's ways all the way from Adam and Eve and all those promises he would have known. And so it's quite likely that Joseph as well held on to God's word and God's ways as he knew from his forefathers by faith. In every circumstance, he would hold on to, this is who God is, this is who he has worked, and this is who he has promised. And as a result, he was able to fight temptation. He was wise beyond his years. He was fruitful and influential and became a blessing, just like the man mentioned in Psalm 1. Joseph is a tree planted by streams of water, or by a spring bearing much fruit. Next, Jacob then talks about the suffering that Joseph went through. Verse 23 says, The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. You know, this is symbolic of the opposition and the hostility and the difficulties that Joseph faced. You know, from his brothers, first and foremost. Then from Potiphar's wife. And even when he was in prison and he was just neglected, he was given empty promises and all the difficulties that he faced. But notice what Jacob says, verse 24. Yet, even though all these attacks and opposition and difficulty came against you, says, yet his bow remained, pardon me, his bow remained unmoved, and his arms were made agile. What does that mean? It means that despite all the difficulties that came to Joseph, he didn't become weak and he didn't crumble. He was still strong and he was unmoved and he was still agile. You say, why? Well, the ne- next bit tells us why Joseph was like this. By the hands of the or let me read the entire verse 24. Yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
So in other words, Joseph didn't crumble when he was faced with opposition and difficulty because God had strengthened him and sustained him. God the mighty one, God the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now I have to keep moving on because there's still much to cover. Now Jacob speaks of the, God's continued blessing to a Joseph, verses 25 and 26, where he says, By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. From the highest heavens to the deepest deeps, the blessing toward Joseph would be that immense. It's a picture of bountiful blessing, you know, agricultural blessing, underground springs of water supply, and fertility in child, childbearing and rearing. Really, here, Joseph gets this, what it's showing is he's getting that double blessing, the blessing of the firstborn. And which essentially will be then with Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons that Jacob had adopted, and will become the very prosperous tribes, as we will trace their history. Okay, so that's about Joseph. And then lastly, we have Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Now Benjamin is compared to a a wolf that is fierce and, and voracious. In fact, the tribe of Benjamin will be known for its bravery and tenacity. Even though it is a It will be a small tribe. Many prominent Israelites will come from this tribe and show acts of bravery and tenacity. Let me name a few. Ehud, he was the second judge. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he was the guy who rescued Israel from King Eglon, the Moabite king. Then you have King Saul the very first king of Israel from the, tribe of, from the tribe of Benjamin, and he would keep Israel safe for about 40 years. Then during the time of exile, you have Esther from the tribe of Benjamin, and Mordecai as well from the tribe of Benjamin. And because of their bravery, they would save the people from being destroyed during the time of exile. And then you come to the New Testament too, you'll see another fellow, Saul. The Pharisee of Pharisees, who would ultimately become, who would eventually become Apostle Paul. So you have King Saul and you have Apostle Paul as well. So easy to remember from the tribe of Benjamin. And and you know of his zeal and his courage and tenacity, right? Both before he became a Christian, he would torture Christians and persecute Christians and drag them out of their homes. And his zeal and tenacity after he became a Christian as well. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. So that's all the sons there. And verse 28 says, All these 
are the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice here it says, these are the 12 sons of Israel, but specifically 12 tribes. Again, emphasizing this is a prophecy that's going to go beyond the individual sons, and it'll go to the tribes that they will represent. And then 28 again, it says, and this is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Interesting, isn't it? The text says here that even though many of what was said to these sons didn't seem like blessing, God's word says they were blessing appropriate to each of his sons. They were prophetic blessings. Now, now why would the text say that? Because some of them didn't actually seem like blessings. Well, first of all, you could say that someone like Reuben or Simeon or Levi, if they were to lead Israel, it would have destroyed Israel way sooner in a great way under their leadership. So in that sense, it was a blessing for the people of Israel to not have those first three in any shape or form lead the nation of Israel. But even more than that, despite what circumstances some of them would, what, circum, what, what would characterize some of them and what, what consequences some of them would face as a result, each of the sons of Jacob would still be included in the blessing of being part of God's people. Not one of these 12 sons would be cut off. They would all be included in God's plan of being part of God's people despite their sin. Okay, so what do we take from this section? I mean, there's certainly smaller lessons of the warnings of having a turbulent character, an unruly character like Reuben, or having out-of-control anger like Simeon and Levi, or the dire consequences of being lazy, or lessons with regards to, in, in a more positive sense, from the life of Joseph, of being steadfast by trusting in God's word and his promises, and in that way God will be with you and keep you steadfast. There's yeah, certainly all those lessons, but I want to pan out just a little bit, uh, a bit out even more, and just bring to you just the more general principle from here. And that is that there are consequences to our actions, to how we behave. We will reap what we sow. And whatever characterizes us now we will reap the consequences of that in the future, good or bad. I want to ask you, you know, for those of you who are listening this morning, are there things that you are doing? Or maybe things that characterize you that maybe nobody else knows about? And you're, you know, you've got it nicely hidden. 
whatever it may be. Maybe it's some of the sins and characteristics of some of these sons that are mentioned here. And maybe you think you can get away with it. But I want to let you know that you can't hide from God. I mean, God not only knows what the past is, He knows what the future is, He knows everything. And you cannot hide from Him. God sees it all. And that should be a scary thought. That God knows it all, all the good, all the bad, and the ugly. But for those of us who are Christians, I want to bring to you another reality as well. And it is this, that if you have put your trust in Jesus, we can say this, while God sees us, He sees us through the righteousness of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what His Son has done. And that's why in Romans says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sinfulness will never negate our righteous standing before God. Why we will suffer the consequences for our actions as believers, we will be never discarded from God's family. Now, how should that make you respond? Oh, there is no more condemnation. You know, I struggle with this sin and that sin and I have this characteristic and this tendency. But I'm never, there's no more condemnation, never going to be discarded from his family. So I can do what I want, right? No. Because that's why, again, Paul says, oh, so so where grace abounds, does that mean that I can just continue to sin? No, not at all. Now, what it should cause us to realize is how gracious God is with us. So that when He sees our sin, He knows the future of our tendencies and where things will go. And yet, He has given us the privilege to be part of His family, to be called His people, simply because of what Christ Jesus has done. We should only marvel at His grace And when we understand the grace that is shown, it should cause us then to even more turn from our sinful tendencies, live in the light by God's grace, and live in a way that glorifies God and makes much of Christ. That's what we should do. We have so much more revelation than any of these sons of Jacob's. So much more. We understand the privileges of it more. We understand the condemnation and everything else. We have a perfect revelation in God's word given to us now. And so we understand the grace even more. And so may it cause us then to, by God's grace, turn from our sinful tendencies, turn from our sinful ways, and then turn to living a life that glorifies Him and makes much of Christ. Okay, so that's the blessing of Joseph and his brothers. That brings us to our second point, the blessing of Judah. This is the second prominent blessing. And the reason I've put this in the end is because it has even more relevance because some of the prophecy regarding Judah is 
yet to come to pass. And it is the prophecy regarding the Messiah. Now here's the thing as we look at the blessing of Judah. Now we saw that Joseph was given the blessing of the firstborn, the double portion blessing. And when you trace the history of the Josephites, yes, they, they become very prosperous, but over time, Ephraim, the older, uh, the, you know, between Ephraim and Manasseh, who gets the double blessing, Ephraim turns away from the Lord and becomes idolatrous. Despite all these blessings and despite all the prosperity that will come to them. And Hosea 4.17 actually talks about it even. Let's just turn there just for a second, if we can have that up. Uh, Hosea 4.17. Yeah, where it says, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. I mean, despite all the blessings, the double blessings and all of that, what does Ephraim do eventually? Leaves that great God and turns to idols. And so then, we are left with one tribe where the kingly line or the messianic line would come that would be the tribe of Judah. Even though Joseph and his sons were given the firstborn status. And I, I think it again you know, points to God's ways are not man's ways and it goes against man's expectations. Because when you think, okay, firstborn blessing, Joseph was so great, oh yeah, the line will come through him. That's what man would be expecting. And yet, God's plan of salvation is so wonderfully complex and marvelous, it goes against man's expectations and it really showcases God's undeserving grace rather than man's deservedness. Because it will come through the most undeserving of all these brothers, and that is Judah. It won't go through the supposed deserved brother Joseph. So verse 8, it says, Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. I want to remind you for a second the kind of person Judah was. Judah was a self-centered, self-absorbed man that looked to taking advantage of others so that things would be well for him, for his own pleasure. That's the kind of man Judah was. If you remember, Judah was the one who suggested that Joseph, let's not kill Joseph, not because he was thinking, oh, that, that's a bad thing, but then he goes on to say, no, let's sell him as a slave so that we can make profit. So taking advantage of someone, so he gets the bounty. Judah, again, was also the man that slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking she was a prostitute. But now the question comes, but why doesn't Jacob indict Judah for his past actions like he did Reuben and Simeon and Levi? Well, because Judah was fully repentant of all his actions. Remember, at the end of the episode with Tamar, when she brings the staff and all the evidences, and he understands, oh, this is Tamar, my daughter-in-law. Remember what he says? She is more righteous than I. And the text even says that he did not sleep with her again. 
And that shows that he recognized his sin and he was repentant. And God was beginning to do a work in this self-absorbed guy named Judah. And then later during the famine, when Jacob wouldn't let go of Benjamin, so that Benjamin could go with the rest of the brothers to Egypt to meet the prince of Egypt, Judah was the one who offered himself, saying, I'll be surety for Benjamin. And if something happens to Benjamin, he said, I'm ready to be cut off from the family and all the blessings that will come through this family. And then after that, in Genesis 44, we saw when uh, Judah was before Joseph, not knowing this prince of Egypt was his own brother, you know, where he says to him, God has found out our guilt. And he was talking about, you know, being remorseful of what they had done to Joseph many years ago. And then he said to Joseph after that, let my brother Benjamin go and take me in his place. Here was a man who had so changed that he, he was representing his brothers. He was willing to lay down his life for the sake of his brother to be a substitute. And we saw all of that and how it really even, there's so much of a Christ-like reflection in the life of Judah now as God has been working in this man. Of all the brothers, or of all the sons, the one guy that really made, because he was such a wretched guy, when he turned around, they were like two polar opposite people. It was evidence of God's work in his life and the fact that he was a repentant person. And so the blessing that Jacob says is, Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will have a position of honor. Now continuing on in verse 8, he says, And your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. That's saying, Joseph Pardon me, Judah, you will have dominion over your enemies. You will conquer your enemies. Your hand will be over their neck. And then he says, your father's sons shall bow down before you. You know, I find this really fascinating because this is what was said of Joseph, right? In his dream that his, that his brothers and his family essentially would bow down before him. And then previously to Abraham as well, God had said, kings would come from your line. And it's as though now Jacob is saying, the kings and rulers are now going to pass on through Judah's line. And there's a sense in which some of them will be like Joseph himself, or maybe even a better king than Joseph. Then in verse 9, he says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Now when you think of lion, even the kids know this, right? The lion is called what? The king of the beast, king of the jungle. All the other animals fear and respect the lion. He is king of the jungle. And so this lion imagery is universal symbol of kingship. It shows power and strength and glory. 
And where it says, who dares rouse him? It's a picture of a majestic conquering king where you know, there's fear and reverence and awe and all of that because he's so strong and powerful. And this line from the tribe of Judah, or the king of the tribe of Judah, will be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The lion who would defeat the serpent of old and crush his head and rescue his people from their sin and the judgment to come by becoming a lamb on that cross. You know, in Revelation 5.5, part of the Bible reading we had this morning, there's mention of this where it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, he alone is the conquering king. And he alone, because he is the conquering powerful king, is worthy to open the scroll and execute perfect justice over his enemies and no one will be able to stand in his way. You know, in fact, even in the book of Numbers, Balaam will prophesy about this line about the promise given to Judah, but he'll talk about it with reference to the people of Israel. Numbers 23, 24. It says, Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. You know, there's a sense in which the people of Israel are being talked about, how they will be so mighty and will conquer their enemies, but there's a sense in which it's also alluding through the prophecy of Judah, alluding to this lion that will come from these people. Then Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, Again, Balaam will talk about this in Numbers 24, 17, where he will say, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. What is the scepter? It's the king's scepter. And it says, and to him, or the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet until tribute comes to him. Now some of your translations may even have until Shiloh comes to him. Now, it's quite notorious to translate this. But when you think of the prophets, you know, you think of a time when the, the wealth of the nations is coming into Zion, where the people from the nations are bringing tribute to the king. And there's no wars, there's peace there. And as a result of that, they're coming to celebrate the king in Zion. They're coming to give 
glory and honor to him. And it says, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So now it's not just the 12 tribes, it's all the peoples. All the peoples will be obedient to this king that's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And I believe Donnie talked about this this morning from Philippians 2 where every knee will bow and every tongue confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord. So powerful king, nobody can stand in his way. He will defeat his enemies. All peoples will be obedient to him, call him Lord and give him tribute. And what will life be like when this king reigns and what will his kingdom look like? Verse 11. Binding his fall to the vine and his donkey's call to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now, when you first read this, you might be wondering, what does the reign of this king and his kingdom have anything to do with donkeys? Well, the picture is this. Normally, you wouldn't tie a donkey or a donkey's call to choice vine. Right? So, especially when there's famine or there's issues with food and things like that, the last thing you would do is tie an animal like that to choice vine or in your vineyards because they're going to destroy the vines. They're going to destroy the vineyard. So what is it saying? There will come a time when there is so much plenty, so much of surplus, so much of food that it doesn't matter if donkeys are tied to choice vines and even if they destroy it because there will be so much of an abundance and then it says and they will he will wash his garments in wine and invest and his vesture in the blood of grapes again normally you'd use water right so this sounds like what are you doing like this is like exuberant luxurious kind of thing like why would you waste things like that But it's the same point, that things are so much in abundance, there's so much of prosperity, that even washing of clothes, you know, even if you wash your clothes in wine, it doesn't matter because there's so much of an abundance. This will be what, when this king comes to reign and his kingdom will look like. So much of prosperity, so much of abundance, people coming to him and giving tribute and there will be peace. And in verse 12 it says, His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Talking about his strength and his beauty, uh, and all of that. Now when you think about this, this is talking about a time when this king will return. And all the enemies will be destroyed. All the enemies against human life in every shape and form will be destroyed. And there will be peace 
and prosperity and abundance like never known before. Like the time before the curse. It's like this king will bring about a a kingdom whereby it'll be like without any effects of the curse. In fact, this is what Jesus also alludes to in John's Gospel, chapter 2. And we looked at this in men's group maybe a month, a month and a half ago. You know, Jesus is at the wedding at Cana. And Mary comes to him and says, we don't have any wine, we've run out of wine. And what does Jesus do? He takes the big, huge jars, I can't remember how many gallons of water there was, and he turns them into wine, and it becomes the choicest wine. So much so that there's now wine in plenty, in surplus. And he was signaling that he is the Messiah, And he's going to bring an age where things will be in so much surplus and so much plenty that his people will have no need and they will be blessed under his reign. Brothers and sisters, this morning, this is what we look forward to when King Jesus returns. When there will be no sin, No effect of sin, no suffering, no death, no enemies, nothing decaying, everything beautiful, everything full of life, everything in abundance, everything, everyone in peace coming to glorify and give tribute to King Jesus. That's what this prophecy is ultimately moving towards and we all long for that day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that is true. And everything that you have said in your word will come to pass. We think of how the sons of Jacob, though undeserving, were still included and given the blessing of being part of your people. We think of ourselves and how undeserving we are, and yet... And despite our sin and failure, because of what your son has done, we are counted to be part of your people. We thank you for that. And Lord, we wait for the day when Christ will come and set things right. When he will reign. And nations, there won't be any more wars and no more suffering. And all nations will come and give tribute to this one true king and we will live with him eternally. Lord, we look forward to that day. Until then, keep us pure and humble. Looking forward to the return of Christ. In the meantime, help us to be faithful to you, seeking to live lives that honor you and make much of Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen.